receive the attention, the media attention that they deserve. My name's Mark Seddon. I was Al Jazeera's United Nations correspondent, uh, and I subsequently went to work for the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, and then more recently for a former president of the General Assembly, Maria Fernanda Espinosa. But today, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Yara Hawari. Uh, this is, uh, I think, Yara, you've been with us before. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Thank you. Um, Yara is in Palestine. Um, and um, for those who don't know uh, Yara, you should know that uh, she's a Palestinian academic. She's a writer and she's a senior policy analyst for Al-Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network. And uh, we welcome uh, Yara to be here with us tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. I know you're having a very busy time, but I wondered if I might just really begin, because today we are discussing uh, what is uh, widely seen, really, as an anti-Palestinian bias in the media. And some may say this is ignorance. Some others may say that it's actually quite deliberate. But either way, uh, we want to try to get to the bottom of this. And who better to help us do that than Yara? Um, and I wonder, Yara, if I could just begin, really, with, I suppose, a focus on um, media in Palestine and what media Palestinians trust. Uh, you know, if, if there's a distrust of much of the international media, um, where do Palestinians go for their news and views? Well, we have um, a lot of local media sources, television channels, uh, radio stations, etc. Uh, we have news groups on, on different messaging um, apps, uh, journalist groups, uh, and then, of course, social media, uh, Twitter. You know, Mark, Palestine is uh, quite a small community and news travels really fast here. Um, so we can, when we often hear of an incident, we're quite um, quite capable of getting all the details quite quickly just from uh, personal contacts. In terms of uh, international sources, there's really a plethora of media outlets who, who have a presence here and who, who report on Palestine. Um, so I wouldn't uh, necessarily be able to say um, what the, the preferred uh, sources are, but there are certainly many. I mean, what about the actual infrastructure, though? But I mean, is there a tradition of Palestinian newspapers, uh, vibrant independent um, newspapers, uh, television and other media? Um, I, I hear what you say about uh, social media and its immediacy and, and how people can click on and, and also what you're saying about Palestine being quite a small place. But, you know, are there kind of trusted voices uh, out there that people go to? Yes, there are. There are. Uh, there is a long tradition of, of newspapers in, in Palestine, really, from the, uh, from the beginning of the, the print press. So where there were newspapers in Palestine. So that's a long tradition and it continues to be a, um, uh, a vital news source for many, as is the radio, actually. Uh, radio stations are quite a, a popular way to access news, and there are um, also, you know, many local news television television channels. Um, uh, so social media has really uh, taken off in, I would say, in the last decade, perhaps a bit less. So there have always been other uh, forms of me uh, media that have uh, a longer history than social media. 
I mean, when, you know, Palestinians watch the BBC or CNN or you know, other international media, if they want to watch it, and what do they feel? By and large, do they, do they, do they, is it fair? Do they think it's fair? Do they think it's reasonable? Well, I, I would also be cautious to to generalize or to speak on on behalf of Palestinians. But I think for a long time, many of us have been cautious of uh, international sort of mainstream media outlets um, that have long silenced uh, Palestinian voices or uh, have erased the, the Palestinian experience. You know, I think people might think that the BBC is impartial and uh, and reports what's happening on the ground uh, as it happens. Um, but I think Palestinians feel that quite the contrary, the BBC um, often uses words and terminologies that actually obscure the truth, you know, using words like clashes or conflict. Um, and, and perhaps the BBC is an example um, that does this par excellence more than any other media outlet. And I don't think that's particularly surprising considering it's the, the national broadcaster uh, for the United Kingdom. Well, Yara, yes, thanks for that. I mean, I think we should, we'll, we'll certainly come back to um, the BBC and other, uh, especially Western media uh, and their coverage. Um, I suppose also before we move on, on to that, and also as you were just talking about there, the, the use of language is very, very powerful because value judgments uh, are made in the use of language, as we know. But tell me, tell me this, because, you know, the, people looking in are also seeing that, you know, when it comes to the Palestinian Authority, um, there, there, there are, there's been repression. You know, there have been elections that haven't been taking place. There's been um, uh, allegedly collusion between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli Authority in policing Palestinians. Is there, if that is the case, is it also the case that the Palestinian Authority would, you know, try to censor news media in Palestine? Well, I think firstly we have to be very clear that it's not allegedly there is there is collusion between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli um, regime. Actually, it's written into uh, um, um, the, the the Oslo agreements that there has to be a form of security coordination between the Palestinian security forces, including the police and the Israeli regime. And it's well documented and talked about. So it's, there's nothing alleged about it. It's uh, it's very much fact. Now, in terms of the, the uh, repression um, of journalists and Palestinian media from the Palestinian authorities in both the West Bank and Gaza, this is um, this has been long and uh, systemic, actually, um, particularly those journalists and media sources who criticise the authorities. And, and this ranges from arrests, beatings, um, social media accounts being shut down. And this has been well documented by human rights groups, including Palestinian human rights groups. Um, but it's also important to mention here that the Palestinian media is also attacked by the Israeli regime. Um, you know, Israeli army forces frequently raid and ransack Palestinian media offices. They target Palestinian uh, journalists at demonstrations, uh, regardless of their their high vis uh, press uh, jackets. They arrest people for social media posts. So this targeting of the media happens from all sides. Um, and so really hats off to the, the Palestinian journalists and the, and the media outlets who continue, despite this repression, 
um, to to report um, to tell the, the the Palestinian story. Well, Yara, I mean, you'll you'll recall that it's not just you know, Palestinian uh, journalists and media that have been under attack uh, by Israeli forces. That was certainly the case in Gaza not so long ago, uh, with the um, missile strike on journalist offices that included um, Associated Press and uh, Al Jazeera. Um, which was something a revelation to a lot of people, but as you've been saying, um, it would—it is the case that this has been going on for quite some time. But look, I wonder, but you know, before we move on to the issue of language and coverage and bias, there has been this initiative, um, which Palestine Deep Dive is very keen on supporting, by the way, of of trying to help Palestinian journalists. Um, actually develop their careers um, and to be able to interact with other journalists and to essentially make this um, demand on especially many of the Western media organizations that they actually hire Palestinian journalists to cover Palestine. It's not such a revolutionary idea. It's something that um, Al Jazeera, uh, for instance, um, has been doing for a very long time. Well, people would say, well, Al Jazeera would, but Al Jazeera did go the, the distance, not just in Palestine, um, but across the world and employing journalists with a local knowledge. Do you think that initiative, and by the way, Mohammed Al-Kurd, who you know very, very well, uh, you know, he could be seen as um, an example of this, somebody who has, the Western media have taken and given him um, a serious job uh, the, the the sort of job that he deserves and the voice that we need to hear. Do you think that it's quite a, a good initiative that this sort of thing can help? Is it is it worthwhile? Well, I think it's important that Palestinians are given the space to tell and to report on their lived realities. And so I do think it's crucial to employ Palestinian journalists to report from the ground. But I would also argue that it's not enough. You know, we know that a lot of media outlets um, make their, their journalists follow a certain line and there are restrictions on what can be said and what can't be said and what can be written and what can't be written. So I think, you know, structurally, we have to look at media institutions with a, with a more critical eye and not be simply satisfied with a veneer of Palestinian inclusion, um, but to make sure that this is a, a structural change of of wanting to challenge the, you know, oppressive regimes and to, to tell grassroots stories, to tell the stories of, of the people who are oppressed and not just stick to the, you know, the, 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 the line that mainstream media has um, stuck to for so long. And I mean, for, for those out there who are, who are interested and, and would like to follow more Palestinian voices, journalists, reporters, commentators, um, you know, you, 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 we can't ask you to plug everybody that you would uh, ask us to pay attention to, but maybe you could point us in the direction of a few good names, a few good publications. Well, a few well good this media. you see, Mark, would get me into trouble of, <laughs> of missing some really important names out and uh, missing some really important comrades yeah. out. Um, so I would say, you know, just to plug also a little bit the organization that I work for, Shabaka, which is a Palestinian think tank. We are home to 
a network of analysts, Palestinian analysts who speak on such a, you know, huge variety of topics. And so mm -hmm. I think, you know, this is a really good source um, for Palestinian analysis. Um, and you can follow Shabaka on Twitter. And also we have a website where you can find all our publications in, in English and Arabic. But beyond the organization that I work for, there are many Palestinian organizations that are doing work, very important work to get, um, you know, Palestinian stories out there, um, such as um, PIPD, um, the IMEU, um, all these different organizations. Um, and there are so many individuals as well that are not affiliated to organizations that are working hard. And Mark, you already mentioned some of them, but I'll refrain from a list so that I don't <laughs> upset anyone. Well, thank you. That's certain, that's certainly food for thought. And we've uh, we put up for people watching um, the link to Al Shabaka. And don't forget, people, uh, all of you out there watching, send in your questions. In fact, here we are. We have a question. Um, this is from Jenny in Newcastle. Um, Hi, Yara. It's great to hear from you tonight. Can you comment on an article published a few days ago in the Jerusalem Post, uh, which had a rather bizarre headline arguing that to label settler violence, that is, the violence committed by Jewish settlers in the West Bank against Palestinians as settler violence, was itself anti-Semitic. What does this say about the support, about the attempts by Israel and its supporters to conflate criticism of Israel with anti-Semitism? Thank you, Jenny. I think this conflation is is incredibly dangerous um, and particularly dangerous to the, the fight against anti-Semitism, which is a struggle that uh, is also inherent uh, to the to the Palestinian struggle as an anti-racist struggle. Um, and I did see that article and I saw that headline, but I didn't read it because it is so ridiculous. It's not worth your time, uh, Jenny, <laughs> to read. Um, but um, it's it's very demonstrative of uh, where the discourse is going. Um, but you know, on the one hand, it's 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 worrying this conflation. But on the other hand, it lacks uh, you know such intellectual credibility that we should also dismiss these uh, these kinds of uh, uh, pieces and this kind of narrative because it lacks you know any kind of sort of uh, uh, deeper. Uh, uh, intellectual uh, credibility. Talking of um, narrative, um, my colleague Omar, who's behind the scenes here, key to this operation, has um, amassed a series of clips. And one of them I thought we might just quickly play now, Omar, if you've got it, which is the uh, first clip, on, um, which is an interview with Yara. I believe the person interviewing her is called Mark, not me, by the way. But, um, but this would give you some indication of... Uh, a typical kind of um, <laughs> typical kind of question about conflict and Hamas and Israel and Gaza, the sort of thing that you quite quite regularly see on Western media. Have you got it there, Irma? Hundreds of rockets randomly into Israel, the way to help de-escalate the conflict. Mark, thanks for having me on. I think it's important to note that Israel has been occupying Gaza uh, and ethnically cleansing Palestine years before Hamas came into existence. Uh, Israel conveniently uses the pretext of Hamas whether, whenever it wants to dissolve itself of, of the responsibility of war crimes that it commits. I mean, that was just an interesting, it's a little clip. I mean, un unfortunately, with small clips, doesn't necessarily provide you with the sort of background to the 
discussion. But there is a kind of, I suppose it's fair to say, and you can help us out here, Yara, there's a kind of basis of which questions are asked very often by Western media of um, Palestinians when really, rarely Palestinians are given a voice. Um, it comes from the language and the positioning is kind of predictable. And you would actually expect the questioning to be, um, you know, tough. Um, there's no point in having an interview if you're not going to be challenged. And interviewers aren't there to agree with those they're interviewing. But Yara, I wonder if you could just tell us something about the use of language and, and where media so frequently starts from. I mean, just, just I suppose in the broadest possible way, when there's reports of conflict, such as there was most recently uh, between forces in Israel and Gaza, they are almost treated by the media as being forces of equal. And there is no way that you can make that kind of supposition. But tell us a little bit more about the use of language, if you will. No, you know, I would say that, you know, it's very clear in, in the mainstream media that certain questions are reserved for Palestinians, um, questions that are very uh, anti-Palestinian, very racist. Uh, you know, immediately Palestinians are expected to condone uh, Hamas or condone any uh, other form of Palestinian resistance before actually they get to the the meat of the conversation and that really sets up the the entire tone for the, the the rest of the conversation and it can put an audience completely off and and often these are these are tricks you know they're they're the attempts to entrap palestinians um into into some in something that they can't answer or that they, they don't want to answer but this the same is never done on the other side you know when you have a you know maybe a british person on they're not immediately asked to condone uh, british colonialism you have an israeli on they're not immediately asked to condone israeli apartheid before they can actually get a chance to speak not that i'm equating those things with hamas at all because they they're very different um, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, there is a certain level or, or certain specific questions and uh, that are reserved for Palestinians and the same is not done um, for others. Uh, and I think, you know, as you said, there is a, a tendency in the mainstream media to both sides, the situation here to claim that there is some kind of parity between the two sides when this is simply not the case. We have a regime which is colonizing another people. Uh, and, and these people, the Palestinians, are simply refusing to allow it to happen so passively. And yet that's not portrayed at all. And that's not just bad reporting. That's actually by design. Um, because, of course, if you portray this as a two-side situation, the, the, the obvious answer is that, well, you know, both sides need to stop the violence and, you know, need to get in a room and chat with each other. Um, and that's not what has to happen at all. Israel has to stop violating Palestinian basic fundamental human rights um, as a precursor to, to anything else before anything else happens. I mean, it's interesting you say that um, and talking specifically about Palestinians as a people, because I remember, I mean, again, this is just a matter of months ago, uh, listening to BBC Radio 4, and there was reporting and discussion around the fighting that was going on. And in the course of this um, introduction by the journalist, uh, he referred to Palestinians as um, Israeli Arabs. 
uh, as Palestinians in the West Bank um, and Hamas in Gaza. So immediately you had a kind of disaggregation of people. They were all different people. It was all very, very confusing for anybody listening in. Um, so if the media can't even get the name of the people right, that's, that's not a, it's not particularly good, is it? What can be done about that? Well, you know, with regards to all these different labels for Palestinians, this is a direct mirroring of the Israeli regime's strategy to fragment the Palestinian people into different categories. So Palestinians in the territories that were occupied in 1948 become Israeli Arabs because they were given Israeli citizenship, and then they lump them with this rather homogenous title, Arab, uh, rather than Palestinians. So they're not Israeli Palestinians, they're Israeli Arabs. Um, even though they were survivors of the ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948 and are therefore Palestinian. And, you know, even though the, very clearly we saw this year uh, during the unity intifada, uh, we saw demonstrations in Haifa and Lid, these are towns and cities in, in the 48 territories or uh, what some might refer to as Israel proper. We saw, you know, Palestinians carrying Palestinian flags, chanting Palestinian chants, and yet they were still media was still reporting that, um, or, or calling them Israeli Arabs. Um, and Palestinians in Gaza are usually completely erased. You know, Gaza Gaza's synonymized with Hamas, or, you know, or sometimes the term Gazan is used uh, as opposed to a Gaza, uh, a, a Palestinian from Gaza. And this is part of an attempt to completely siphon off Gaza. Um, and so, you know, whilst it's true that you know, Palestinians in each of their geographic communities face different challenges and forms of oppression from the Israeli regime. It's also true that they share this, the, this experience of oppression, and moreover, they share a peoplehood. Um, and I think the unity intifada of May this year demonstrated, you know, just that, that Palestinians across colonized Palestine, from Gaza to Haifa, responded to the ethnic cleansing of Sheikh Jarrah, the, the neighborhood in, in Jerusalem, uh, not because they were standing in solidarity, but because they were standing in shared struggle. And I actually think this year did help shift the narrative on that. It did help um, in terms of the labels, in terms of recognition that, that Palestinians um, exist from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea and not simply in uh, the West Bank, as the, the mainstream media would have you believe. I mean, Yara, also, it's not just, um, you know, titles, epithets, the rest of it. It's also the, the, the sin of omission. And we've got a question here. This is from uh, Catherine Edinburgh. And um, Catherine says, right now, there are hunger strikes going on amongst Palestinian prisoners inside Israeli jails, but very little Western media coverage at all. Could you speak about what's happening there? And why you think the media pays so little attention to Palestinian protests? Well, with specificity to the Palestinian prisoners, there are, um, I think, about 4,600 Palestinian um, uh, political prisoners in, in Israeli jails, and they are um, being incarcerated um, contrary to international law. Um, they are being held for all kinds of uh, trumped-up charges, and uh, and they were tried through the Israeli military court system, which has a 99.9% .9 conviction rate. 
Um, so not only is it an illegal system, it's a system that you could never hope to to beat if you um, if you get caught up in it. And most Palestinians are affected by incarceration, either their you know brothers or fathers or neighbors or friends have been arrested. Being arrested and incarcerated, unfortunately, is a uh, is a shared uh, uh, feature of uh, of Palestinian life. The problem is, is that because Israel deems Palestinian political ter- uh, political prisoners as terrorists, the international community refuses to to touch them or to give them uh, attention. Um, despite the fact that they have been illegally incarcerated, um, the, the Israeli regime has very, been very uh, clever, uh, 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 really. Um, making this a a sort of a topic or an issue that that people are too afraid to touch. And so unfortunately, um, it doesn't get the, this issue doesn't get the attention that it deserves. And Palestinian political prisoners have long waged hunger strikes in in protest of their uh, illegal incarceration. And many of these hunger strikes have gone uh, unnoticed uh, by by the mainstream media. I think we might just have, if that's all right, my colleague Omar there um, will have this at his fingertips, I'm sure. Uh, um, another short clip. This starts on the uh, supposition, so many questions, that the so-called two-state solution is uh, a, a fact, a fact on the ground and is still an active uh, reality when, in fact, most people really, um, on all sides, who look at this dispassionately would say that the two-state solution is as dead as a dodo. However, we should perhaps let this little clip talk for itself. Is there a viable two-state solution, in your opinion, given given the conditions and given the, the temperature on the ground right now? Why are you limiting yourself to that question? Why is not the question, is there a viable, just solution? Can Palestinians live free? Can they say they're Palestinian without being chased down um, by settlers shooting at them? Can, can they say, hi, I want Palestine to be free without worrying about the Israeli military court charging us with incitement? Because that's what's happening. And it's ridiculous that we're still asking the same old questions. Miriam, is- I- There you go. <laughs> the same old questions. That, that's, uh, there's Marion Baguti there giving as good as she can get. And, um, but there you go. I mean, this is one. I suppose this is, goes back to what we were talking about earlier. This kind of supposition behind a lot of the questions that you know, you, this is a, this is accepted by everybody. You know, why can't you? Why can't you look at it the way we look at it? Uh, and 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 to respond in the way that Mariam just did is actually to open up a, a whole new range of issues that actually any good interviewer, if they had time, would go back and ask her about. Because I wondered if I might then take you on beyond that to, um, you know, other uh, use of language, which from the Palestinian side and from those who have been supportive of Palestinians around the world seem to be axiomatic, but seem to be really rather troublesome, especially for sections of the media. And I suppose one of those phrases could be settler apartheid or settler colonialism or Israeli apartheid. Now, you mentioned Israeli apartheid earlier in our discussion, um, Yara. But, you know, there are a lot of people who get very exercised about that in the media and say there's 
there's no such thing. You can't say that. You know, Israel doesn't practice apartheid. It's got a, it's got a parliament, uh, Knesset, that has Arab members in it. What do you say to all of that? A Israeli member of Knesset the other day in the parliament told Palestinian members of Knesset that David Ben-Gurion should have finished the job in 1948 and he was not expelled from the parliament. And that's not uh, odd rhetoric to hear in the Knesset. That's actually, you know, very racist rhetoric is something that's that's frequently heard. I think the Palestinian presence in the Knesset does, does not... Uh, does not damage the analysis of apartheid and settler colonialism. Rather, it's an example um, of how the Israeli regime tries to hide or use, you know, Palestinians as a convenient veneer um, uh, to, to sort of promote an idea that Israel is an inclusive society. The reality is far from the truth and, you know, Palestinians have not been listened to for many decades on that. Uh, luckily for us, many international organizations are coming out to say that they are um, that they recognize the Israeli regime as one of uh, of one of one of apartheid, um, that it inflicts apartheid uh, on the Palestinian people as a whole, uh, from the river to the sea and beyond. And this isn't simply about separating two peoples, but it is about dominating a people. And I think that's something that people uh, don't usually get right when they think of apartheid, they think of separation. But it's not simply separation. It's uh, it's domination, total uh, domination over one group of people by another group of people. Um, and so... <clears throat> Some of the organizations I mentioned include Human Rights Watch. There will be more international organizations next year coming out with uh, similar apartheid uh, reports. The term settler colonialism you mentioned is crucial in all of this because apartheid does not exist uh, in a void. It exists because, in this case, in a context of settler colonialism. So Israel as a settler colonial regime is inflicting uh, or using apartheid as a mechanism to control and subdue the indigenous population. And these terms are becoming more mainstream. Um, I think there is a long way to go yet until we have them firmly embedded and recognized uh, and accepted. But there are huge uh, seismic shifts happening um, here in terms of in terms of the language. And I have think we have to insist on on these terms and we have to use them correctly because not only do they accurately describe what's happening on the on the ground but they also provide a prescription of what should happen next that's interesting yara because i mean you will have seen that here, here in the in, in britain where i am um the uh, the main opposition's party conference uh last month the labor party the conference the members voted uh for just that, to, to, to call out Israel for apartheid. And of course, none other than President Cyril Ramaphosa of South Africa uh, has said as much himself. And, and really, you would expect him to know. But there's something that did occur to me because we were talking earlier about um, how the media describes Palestinians and fits them into boxes. Perhaps they're Israeli Arabs, perhaps they're Palestinians from the West Bank. But in a way, do you think we have a template in apartheid South Africa? Because just think back, you know, the 
South African apartheid regime was very keen on giving pe taking people back to homelands, and they created them, Transkei, Siskei, Boputswana. And South Africans became citizens of places they'd never often been. But it was very helpful to the apartheid authorities to atomize people. I mean, do you think they could be taken further by the Israelis if they were able to, or the Israeli government if it's able to, which is to say, yeah, you're a, you're a Gazan, you're an Israeli Arab, um, you're, a, you're from Jericho, you're a Spe and so you can completely continue to actually atomize the people. Do you think they could do that and get away with it now? Well, they are doing it and they are getting away with it. Palestinians and Gaza are referred to as Gazans. Um, I think, you know, increasingly so, Palestinians, they're referring to Palestinians and the media refers to Palestinians as only those in areas A of the West Bank. Uh, the others, you know, in area C might just be random Bedouins, like the Palestinian community of Khan al-Ahmar, uh, which is a Bedouin, Palestinian Bedouin community that is... Uh, uh, facing imminent uh, demolition of their homes. So I think that's already happening. And I think it's, you know, it, it, it's a very similar tactic as to what happened in South Africa is to bandanize the, the indigenous population and to remove uh, any notion of a peoplehood because mm -hmm. then you were able to strip them of yet more rights and to take away their their legitimacy of uh, their legitimate claims of sovereignty and that's really key here in this case you know if you don't have a people a collective um how can you claim uh, uh, uh any kind of sovereign status and that's exactly uh, israel's game in this case yeah there's a i mean there's another issue i, I wanted to, to see what you thought about this because yeah there has been discussion of this in the global media um but there are there are people who say well really yeah, there's been discussion of it but it hasn't reached its logical conclusion and the issue is this it's the um the controversial nation state law israel's nation state law um and i just for the benefit i mean most of the of the folks watching tonight will, will be familiar with it but some of some some of you may not be i mean essentially uh, the nation-state law, it states that the right to exercise national self-determination in Israel is unique to the Jewish people. It establishes Hebrew as Israel's official language and downgrades Arabic, the language widely spoken by Palestinians in Israel, to a special status. And it establishes Jewish settlement as a national value and mandates that the state will labor to encourage and promote its establishment and development. Now, this, I mean, it seems to me, and it's, uh, perhaps, you, you know, you, you can tell us what you think about this, but it seems to me that it actually does two things. It, it, it goes towards establishing a kind of a theocratic state, you know, uh, and, um, and it also encourages what we've just been talking about, settler apartheid. And, and that actually, to a lot of people, given what we've just been discussing, is actually reminiscent of a, a theocratic state like Iran, and B, an apartheid state like South Africa. Now, if we can make that, if we can reach those conclusions simply based on the nation state law, you know, why isn't this a big, big issue? That's what I think a lot of people would like to know. Well, I'm not sure about the comparison with Iran, uh, to be honest with you. Um, but I think it's important to make something well, well, clear. Well, and I'll come back to that. On, but, but, but why not? I mean, I know there's a, a majli in Iran. I know there are reserved places for Christians, for Jews, and for others. But it is a 
theocratic state, really. I mean, um, and is that is that a model that if Israel is talking in similar language, um, or perhaps you'll, you'll disagree with me, you say, well, no, you're not obliged. You know, there's not a uh, Muslims are not valued above Christians or Jews in Iran. I mean, but, but tell us because it'd be interesting to know. Uh, well, I was about to continue the answer. Um, I, I don't think that that comparison is right with Iran. Uh, Israel is a settler colonial regime. This law, um, the nation state law, as it's being called, is not new. Um, all of the provisions in this law already exist in Israel's basic laws, which functions as its constitution. It was simply a statement of what already exists. And the reason it was done was to placate at the time um, uh, the sort of the, the very far right wing camp. It was a gift to them. But it was a restating of things that already exist and have already existed since the establishment of the state of Israel. Israel was established as a Jewish nation state. Um, and this was enshrined in its legal setup. And it's crucial that we recognize Israeli apartheid from its very beginning. It, Israel didn't become, suddenly become an apartheid state. It always was, and it was purposely mm. set up that way. So if we look at the uh, phenomenon of Israeli citizenship, for example. So in Israel, unlike in most countries, citizenship and nationality are distinct terms and categories. So uh, there is such a thing as Israeli citizenship, but there is no Israeli nationality. Nationality is designated along religious uh, ethnic lines. Um, and yet, because the state defines itself constitutionally as Jewish, not Israeli, as Jewish, those with Jewish nationality trump the non-Jewish population. So as the nation and the state of Israel are considered one and the same, the exclusion of non-Jewish citizens is the obvious consequences. And so this differentiation between citizenship and nationality allows for this very sophisticated and covert racist system um, that's not necessarily detectable to the unknown observer. It divides people into these two categories and it does so legally. And so that's actually very different to Iran and to other countries who might describe themselves no, as Islamic or Christian. Yeah, yeah right. I, I, was, I was trying to differentiate between apartheid and theocracy. I mean, I think there's no, there's no apartheid in um, Iran. Um, but the the issue could be, I mean, the codifying these laws, you know, which, as you were saying, this has been the process that's been underway, but it's been kind of, in a way, it seems to many of us looking in, this is now, this is, this is where it's at now, it's kind of saying this is a Jewish state. You might as well have a, a religious leader as head of state as you do in Iran, mightn't you, if you're going to have a theocracy. So what I suppose I'm saying is, let's forget the pretense. You know, and, and and shouldn't the media be asking these sort of questions? Yes, mm. <laughs> we should be. Yeah, because we've been well, talking about it for a long time, and we've been telling everyone mm. for a long time. The nation-state law isn't a process; it's not new. This has been there since the get-go, since Israel enshrined its Baker-Sick laws, the very foundation of the Jewish nation-state. That was there from the very beginning. This is not new. And Palestinians have been reporting in and talking about it for, for many decades now. So, I mean, it's, um, I mean, just look looking ahead and, and, and looking at, you know, how um, 
you can sort of reach out as Palestinians to media organizations elsewhere across the world and and also to, to to campaigns you know such as black lives matter which has been there's been a very powerful linkage between palestinian activism Palestine. black lives matter um activism as well do, do you do you see that these sorts of grassroots campaigns can sort of um actually develop an impetus that can also then influence media coverage Yeah, I think there has been uh, a clear sort of linking up between the, the Palestinian struggle and the Black Lives Matter struggle, and that's in recognition of, um, you know, shared shared values, but also uh, facing similar, um, not the same, but similar structures of oppression and, and facing similar techniques of oppression. And so I think it was only natural that these, uh, that these struggles were, uh, um, sister struggles, um, particularly because the Palestinian movement is an anti anti racist one, um, and we have a lot to learn from our brothers and sisters in the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, their their grassroots struggle uh, is one that we can only hope to emulate. Um, I, and and we are because we are a fragmented people, and because we have a lot of people in the diaspora. There are just as many. Palestinians in the diaspora as there are in Palestine. It means that we are, um, you know, we are everywhere and we are able to be part of many struggles internationally and that, you know, we can use our fragmentation, our forced fragmentation to our benefit um, to create those, those links and those uh, solidarity networks um, that otherwise might have been, been hard to do so. Thanks, Yara. I think we've got time just for one um, last clip if we may this is by um a great friend of yours uh, muhammad al-kud and uh, it kind of shows uh, a sort of real sort of pushback um at a line of questioning uh, which really would make the interviewer begin to focus again perhaps on on where he she was getting the information from but could we omar if you've got that to hand do you support the protests uh, the violent protests that have erupted in solidarity with you and and, and other families in your position right now do you support um, the violent dispossession of me and my family? I'm just asking if you support the protests that are taking place in support of, of, of your family. I support, I support popular um, protests taking place against ethnic cleansing, yes. Thank you very much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak to us. Mohammed Al-Kurd, thank you very much. Thank you. I mean, that was interesting in lots of different ways. I mean, it was a very short clip. I mean, the supposition being that um, the protests uh, uh, in, in support of uh, Palestinians who were being pushed out of their homes was violent. Um, the questioning wasn't about the violence that was driving um, Palestinians out of their homes in the first place. Um, and it's kind of this idea, really, that, uh, that the Palestinians are usually at fault, that these things wouldn't be happening if the Palestinians weren't at fault. So, I mean, how do you, just as a matter of interest, really, Yara, because you do quite a lot of this stuff, you've gone on a lot of these US networks, and, you know, you want to, it's a great opportunity, that's also at the same, at the same, um, at the same time to be able to be able to speak to an audience that really may have very, very little knowledge of uh, Palestine, um, and to hear you. So how do you, you know, sometimes you, you have to be diplomatic, you have to bite your tongue, I suppose, and you don't, 
I mean, Mohammed there wasn't necessarily being very diplomatic, but he was very angry, I should think. But how do you, what's your sort of um, take on how to deal with interviews? How do you cope with it all? Well, I think um, Hammond did so brilliantly and with such elegance, considering the fact that his family uh, are facing imminent dispossession. And he was talking from Sheikh Shabbat, who I actually think uh, he did it so brilliantly and can only aspire to, to live up to that example. But, you know, as we mentioned earlier, you know, Palestinians are often um, almost immediately asked to denounce violence um, and many media mainstream media outlets sort of inherently portray that that image of the, the violent Palestinian and and you'll always see uh, the, the the images that they use are of you know Palestinians um, uh, engaged in, in some kind of confrontation um, so it's 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 difficult and it's often used as a distraction as a way to to get us bogged down and sort of defending ourselves rather than sharing you know the the, the the story, our lived realities. And so we have to maneuver, uh, it comes with practice and it comes with, you know, experience. You have to maneuver these questions uh, as, as quickly and uh, and concisely as possible so that you can actually get to the, the, the meat of the, the the discussion, which is, you know, the, the ongoing and continued oppression of, of the Palestinian people. And, and a lot of mainstream outlets seem to just do that uh, checkbox of getting a Palestinian on and they'll they'll find a way to not let them talk and then they'll uh, carry on with the narrative that they want to portray. So it's definitely a skill and the odds are, are definitely stacked against us. But I think this year in particular has shown a really great Palestinian determination to be present in, in, in mainstream media spaces. Well, Yara, Yara sadly, we're going to have to bring things to a to a close shortly, but I wanted just to end really because you you made mention just now and you have previously about how um, how the argument has moved on in many respects this year. Um, I mean, do you feel more hopeful looking at the media landscape, given that you know we're not just dependent on broadcast news and newspapers that we actually get our news and information from many many sources, and if we can trust them and they're verified. Um, then there's a multitude out there that is actually giving us information, reporting from on the ground that we may not have seen before. So do you feel, I suppose my final question to you is, do, are you more hopeful? I think these uh, social media platforms definitely offer us a tool that we didn't have before. And I think that was demonstrated very well by Muhammad uh, al-Kurd and his sister in Sheikh Jarrah, uh, the world would not have known about Sheikh Jarrah. It wasn't for their uh, their brilliant uh, and, uh, and very strategic use of, of social media. Um, I also think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And just as we can use social media, so can the Israeli regime. Um, and, and so, you know, there are always... Uh, cons when there are pros, but I this year has allowed me to to be a bit more hopeful that that, that more of the world will hear our story uh, and will understand our, um, our our struggle. Lovely, thank you very very much, Yara. Thank you very much for joining us today, and uh, we'd love to have you on again. Good luck with all that you're doing, and um, until next time, from all of us here. Palestine Deep Dive, 
Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me.